a moth goes into a podiatrist's office, and the podiatrist says, what's the problem? The moth says, where do I begin with my problems? Every day I go to work for Gregory Vasilevich, and all day long I toil but what is my work? I am a bureaucrat, and so every day I joylessly move papers from one place to another and then back again. I no longer know what it is I actually do, and I don't even know if Gregory Vasilevich knows. He only knows that he has power over me, and this seems to bring him much happiness. And where is my happiness? It is when I awake in the morning and I do not know who I am. In that single moment, I am happy. In that single moment, before the memory of who I am strikes me like a cane, and I take to the streets and walk in a malaise here and then there and then here again. And then it is time for work. Others stopped asking me what I do for a living long ago, for they know I will have no answer and will fix my empty eyes upon them, and they fear my melancholia might prove so deep as to be contagious. Sometimes, Doc, in the deepest dark of night, I awake in my bed and I turn to my right, and with horror I see some old lady lying on my arm, an old lady that I once loved, Doc, in whose flesh I once found splendor and now see only decay, an old lady who insults me by her very existence. My daughter, Alexandria, fell to the cold of last winter. The cold took her as it did many of us, and so my family mourned. And I placed my countenance upon my countenance, the look of grief, Doc, but it was a masquerade. I felt no grief for my dead daughter, but only envy. And so I have one child, a boy whose name is Stefan Mikhailovich Smoknogorovichkov. And I tell you now, Doc, with great and deep shame, the terrible truth, I no longer love him. When I look into his eyes, all I see is the same cowardice that I see when I catch a glimpse of my own eyes in the mirror. It is this cowardice that keeps me living. Doc, that keeps me moving from place to place, saying hello and goodbye, eating though hunger has long left me, walking without destination, and at night lying beside the strange old lady in this burlesque of a life I endure. If only the cowardice would abate for the time needed to reach over and pick up the cocked and loaded pistol that lies on my bedside table. Then I might finally end this facade once and for all. But alas, the cowardice takes no breaks. It is what defines me. It is what frames my life. It is what I am. And yet I cannot resign myself to my own life. Instead, despair is my constant companion as I walk here and then and there without dreams, without hope, and without love. Moth, says the podiatrist, your tail has moved me, and it is clear you need help. But it is help I cannot provide. You must see a psychiatrist and tell him of your troubles. Why on earth did you come to my office? And the moth says, because the light was on. <laughs> Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Why do I tell this my favorite joke, which is was written down in a book called Based on a True Story? I, I mean, tell oh it. my God, of course that's your favorite joke. It's okay. my all time so favorite much, joke. Go on, Dave. <laughs> I have things to say. Continue. That is a joke, uh, one of the great uh, jokes 
uh, told by Norm MacDonald, who mm. we found out died yesterday after a long battle, a secret battle with cancer. Or not, I, that word battle, I just affliction. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just, uh, the world lost a great one there. He was, a, I admired him greatly, but mainly he just made me laugh. And you have today, you have like David Letterman and Conan O'Brien saying he was, you know, all of the stand-ups agree he was the best of the best. And, uh, yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd open it up with that because never, there'll never be a better time to uh, subject, inflict the moth <laughs> joke on See, our this listeners' ears. this is the thing. Like, when Dave and I worked in youth ministry together, he was, he, there are two things he was famous for. They're, they're both just horrible, horrible jokes. <laughs> and one of them was called the whale joke. Which, if we have any former Focus students listening, they'll know exactly what that was. It was awful. And then the other was one amazing. was exactly like the moth joke. It just went on and on and on and on. And the um, the, the, the punchline was um, what I've always I've always wanted a pumpkin head. Was that was that the was that the punchline? It you, just was terrible. You're going to murder so. it. It's called the pumpkin head joke, and it's a it's a thing of great beauty and brilliance. And I had never even heard the moth joke when when that joke came to me. I didn't write that otherwise joke. Otherwise, it would have really? been the moth joke. Yeah. Otherwise, oh it would have been it's the same same thing. But I didn't. So I was I didn't realize until I saw it that that um, Norm Macdonald was a Christian. I had just I had no idea about that. And um, yeah. it was interesting. You know, Sarah, we were talking about it yesterday, and Sarah, you can say more about this. But the fact that he got kind of um, you know, canceled for being unwilling to cancel other people. Yeah. was interesting. Yeah. It was interesting. It really was. And, but also like, of course, then it was like, you know, he's not, this then the narrative of he's not paying enough attention or, or, or being sensitive enough to, to victims. And then, and then there was just like profuse apology coming from him, profuse, genuine apology, which is also, incredibly Christian. Yes. Um, of course he still was like canceled from being on Jimmy Fallon show regardless, because it doesn't matter in the culture that we live in, how much you (laughs) apologize, you know? So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it's funny though. Now when people die, uh, which is always funny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) hilarious. hilarious. (laughs) He would have appreciated that. Uh, you have to Google them uh, before you put up anything nice about them, I think, uh, because inevitably I was like sitting there because, you know, uh, RJ, you had shared in our group text that just beautiful um last stand up he did on David Letterman. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And the gosh, the quote is, it's just so beautiful. And I was like, I have to share this a, cause I want people to see it, but B because it reminded me so much of my dad. My dad loved Norm Macdonald. You know, I was raised on stand up, would not be a preacher if it weren't for stand up. Mm. And, um, I was like, but I feel like he did something, you know, like before I put it up, I was like, what did Norm Macdonald <laughs> do? I feel sure like he, he got in trouble. Something. So I like yeah. Google, literally Google Norm Macdonald scandal. Mm-hmm. Right. And then realized what he got in trouble for was basically not, you know, uh, deciding that we're going to cast all these people into the outer darkness of hell. So, uh, anyway, it was just, it was a, it was sort of an interesting, like I loved, and I, and I did share the post. I just thought it was so beautiful, but, but I, um, it's funny when people die now, you've got to, before you say anything positive about them, you've got to be like, what's their sin? You know what I mean? Like, well, is this, what's the calculation here for me? Is this worth me sharing or will people take me down for like, 
giving any sort of like uh, love to this person, right? G- give it's the just, quote, Sarah. Give the quote from the, the, oh, the Dave Letterman stand-up. Um, I, ha- I have it because I texted it to our girl. I just like, Josh and I were just, we were just blown away. Um, this was, this was, but the setup is that it's, he's, yeah. he was on, uh, he was, he's David Letterman's favorite comedian of all time. And he's, it was, it was Letterman's final, final show. And he knew, yeah. he got to choose who he wanted and he wanted Norm to do a set. And so, sorry, he gives this incredible set. And then Sarah. Oh no, don't apologize. It's so beautiful. Well, and right before he says this, he talks about the first time that he saw David Letterman and he gets choked up. And you can barely make it through. Yeah. As like yeah. a kid in as a kid in Canada, I guess, right? He grew yeah. yeah. And it just gosh. As someone <clears throat> I mean, he said I love stand up. And as someone who loves stand up, I was just like, oh, it was so moving. But he said he said this to David Letterman. He was talking about you know what a remarkable uh, late night host David Letterman is, and and how he's so great at his job, and and how he loves him, and he and he said, you know, I know you're not basically into sentimentality, but he said, it, if something is true, it is not sentimental, and I say in truth that I love you. Mm. It's just and da- Dave is like like through tears he can't, yeah. and Dave is like you see it, it's a moment of such. Uh, you know, uh, candid, authentic emotion. Like he's, yeah. he didn't yeah. see it coming. He didn't know what was happening. And Norm is never serious about anything. I mean, Norm is <laughs> always yeah. amusing himself at the cost of everyone else. And so to get that, that moment of direct sentiment is just so, I don't know. I, I, every, you look at the YouTube comments under that and everyone's like, I came here to cry today. It's also the funniest that it, it's after this oh, stuff yeah. he does about Germany, which is, it's the, which is so good. <laughs> so funny. It's so funny. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, he was just his own man in a lot of ways. And sometimes he would have these long threads on Twitter before he quit Twitter <laughs> or before he was made or whatever. But Norm was, um, uh, what what always fascinated me about Norm was that is he's one of these people that you, as you dug into stand up, if you cared about that, you'd find out that a lot of these great stand up comedians considered him to be the best. Like it was, mm. it was uh, you know they consider sort of Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor right. and and you know and Norm and so Steve Martin thought that way, uh, Jerry mm. Seinfeld thought that way, Sarah Silverman thought that way. It was they're all sort of saying a comics comic. He's a comics comic. I was like, what does that mean? And then you sort of go down the rabbit hole of watching these uh, talk show clips of him winding everyone up and like the the watching Conan O'Brien react to him tell the moth joke or watching. Uh, uh, you know, Letterman deal with it like no one can contain themselves, and that kind of reflexive laughter to me is so human and it's so yeah. genuine. And uh, Norm had it in spades, and he never stopped. He just it was always you got the sense it would probably be impossible to live with the man, but <laughs> it was really you, that was so that was so touching, RJ. I'm so glad you sent that to us. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, how are you guys doing? Otherwise, what's uh, it's been a few weeks because because uh, there's some illness. You guys are not feeling so hot, but um, you recovered. What's what's the latest in the Condon household? Uh, well, I mean, like we had a storm come through yesterday and lost power all day, um, which is just like mm. par for the course. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, I went over to a friend's house. Josh went into the office. Uh, you know, kids went place like we just, they're old enough. We kind of all found our place for the day, but um, 
it does feel a little relentless when we're in hurricane season. And you guys know I have a brother that lives in New Orleans. So it's all, like anytime a hurricane comes, we're always like, which one of us is it going to hit? Which is which is pretty unpleasant. So, um, yeah, but we're we're better today. You know, power's back on. Um, kids are in school. It's just, uh, yeah, I mean, one thing that's happened for me with grief is that I, this is like way more... Uh, therapy stuff that you guys probably need to hear, but I tend to disassociate pretty easily. And so I have to like, I, I like, I, I really do have like a routine I have to get into, which I guess is everybody right now. Cause everyone lives in trauma. But, um, like mm. last night it was like, you're back in your house. The power's back on. You can make dinner, you know, kind of Small like, talk my, yeah. Cause you're just like, what's happening? You know? Yeah. So mm. yeah. Ugh. Gosh, I mean, as if you've had enough, not just grief, but hurricane uh, activity to last three lifetimes, it feels like. We really have, but it's just, you know, we're at this point, we're kind of, I don't know. It's, I I keep having that thing run through my head. I feel like I've sat on here before, but you know, I had somebody in my life say, tell me that they had, their childhood had a lot going on. Their family had a lot going on. Like, this isn't normal. This isn't a normal childhood. And I'm just like, I feel like that's probably normal. I don't know. Mm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's expand our idea of normalcy. I think that's yeah, what we Yeah, I mean, I feel like we were living in the glory days for about 150 years, and we're just going back to, <laughs> I had that like, exact same thought. Like, the shuttle, like- you know what I mean? With, like, chickens <laughs> and, like, brainstorms and plagues like i feel like this is we're just going back to what actually it was like the baseline yeah (laughs) yeah exactly so i'm like i don't know rutger how about you uh we're okay um jamie's stepmom did pass away last week um which was hard and you know really hard on her father and so um, she's just spent a ton of time on the phone with her siblings and step-siblings. And she, she reminded me recently, like, she's like, RJ, you know, it was a month ago that all these people in my family got COVID. And so it's really been a month of, um, I don't know, trauma or, or drama or just, it's been sort of exhausting. Yeah. Um, you know, and then just, you know, work-wise, we're, we're trying, we're starting back Sunday school back up this week and trying to... I don't know, recapture some sense of normalcy, you know, even as infection rates in South Florida, which have crested and they're coming down, but they're still pretty high. Um, so, you know, I'm sure, you know, everyone can relate to that. Just, it, it's very hard to make decisions and yeah. it's, it's uh, decision fatigue also ha- constantly having to pivot, constantly try- having to try new things. Yeah. I think it is comforting for me when I talk to other people, um, cause sometimes you can get in your own little space and think it's just you. And then you talk to somebody else who, you know, either works or has kids and everyone's going through the exact same thing. It's yes. like, oh yeah, it's, it's not my fault that I can't come up with a perfect solution for everything. Mm, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it doesn't seem to be possible right now. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And I did get a little cold last week, uh, which was, which was a bit of a bummer. Um, but we're okay. I will say bright spots. Um, well, first of all, our littlest boy turns five tomorrow. He's very excited. Oh, um, and he's doing well and he's happy in school. And our, our oldest son, um, in college is having a really good year. He's finally like having a, having a college, I think, experience and making friends and having fun. And he was worried about going back because last year was so, you know, difficult. Um, so there's some, you know, some highs, some lows, but, um, I just, yeah, as we all are, we're, we're, we're ready to get back to normal and wondering if it's ever going to come. 
Yeah. It's not. <clears throat> Don't say Stay that. Don't say you. that. Don't say that. I have some thoughts. We're not there yet. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about it. I'm not ready to give up quite yet. Maybe I should. Maybe the, I just need to give up. Uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. I've. Uh, it's this season of you know all this a lot lot happening. We got uh, Melina Smith and Naya Kiso, star of, of Storymakers, are in town right now visiting to sort of check in uh, with sort of the mothership of Mockingbird, and that's mm. always a joy to have people from out of town. And um, but I'm I'm sprinting to try to finish the manuscript that I've been working on, and I'm sure. um, I'm getting really excited about it. And uh, but it's also it's it's just more than I can handle right now with also church obligations and lots of kid activity and all sorts, you know, trying to, you know, plan the next season for Mockingbird itself. So, um, yeah, if you, I'd say that in two weeks when we record again, I'll, I, I, I like to think a lot of these things will have passed, but I'm sure I'll be dealing with other stressful things. <laughs> the sun will come out tomorrow. I honestly have gotten so much joy in the last 24 hours from rewatching all this Norm Macdonald stuff, which I love so much. Oh, yeah, that's I'm good. so glad. That's good. Yeah. Um, and just for being reminded of what a gift humor is and, and mm-hmm. how much it means to me. Um, so let's, uh, we're going to jump in. We've got some great things to talk about today. The first one is there's a new book out by Will Storr, who's a British journalist who we've quote, I quote in Seculosity, actually. Um, in the, he wrote a, a little editorial for The Guardian called, We All Play the Status Game, But Who Are the Real Winners? And he says that in his opening, he says, humans are programmed uh, by evolution to be ex- obsessively interested in status and that this obsession is powerful enough to overcome the will to achieve equality, truth, or the sense of generous compassion for our rivals. He says, we play games for status incessantly and automatically. No matter where you might travel, from the pre-modern societies of Papua New Guinea to the skyscraper forests of Tokyo and Manhattan, you'll find it. In the developed world, we play political games, religious games, corporate games, sports games, cult games, legal games, fashion games, hobby games, video games, charity games, social media games, racial, gender, and nationalist games. The variety feels infinite. Within these groups, we strive for individual status, for acclaim from our co-players. But our groups also compete with rival groups in status contests. Corporations battle corporation. Football teams battle football teams. Uh, When our team wins status, we do too. When they lose, so do we. These games form our identity. We become the games we play. They're built into our brains. Part of how we experience reality. It is simply not possible to opt out of it, but we can decide which games we choose to play. Then he goes on to say, humans are extraordinarily imaginary creatures who use almost anything to symbolize status. Money, Twitter followers, literary tastes, power, the brand of watch, or the shape of a stomach. In the 1948, the anthropologist William Bascom published an account of a status game on the Micronesian island of Pohnpei that was played with yams. The man with the largest yam at a feast would be declared number one and praised by the chief for his generosity. Yam envy. The men of the men. I knew you'd go there. The men of Bone Pay would. I mean, would, furious, oh, would furiously compete for this position, raising mm. around fifty yams a year in secret, remote, overgrown plots that they'd creep out of bed at two in the morning to tend to. A single yam could take ten years to grow, reach more than four meters in length, weigh over ninety kilograms, and w- require twelve men to carry into the feast using a stretcher. Um. I'll go on, but um, status games, does this resonate at all? 
No, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> how, how, many, how many people are coming to your church, RJ? <laughs> I don't keep track. Uh, Sarah, how many followers do you have on Facebook? How many? Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, I made this joke in the latest magazine uh, when I had to do the, or I got to do, the, um, the advice article. Which, which is amazing. Really amazing. Dear it Gracie. Was, it was fun to do. But, um, but it is true that whenever someone gets a job and they announce it on Facebook and it literally does not matter what the job is, okay? Like not even in my sphere of expertise, like you got manager of Applebee's, you're CEO of like a tech company or whatever. I'm like, I should have gotten that job. Like every time, like something in my brain's like, do they not know about me? You know, like... It's so dark and scary, um, but it, this is very reassuring to me because I do, you know, I think uh, I think there is definitely. I mean, I, it's reassuring to me that it's like that the the writer wasn't like it's an American problem, you know, like it's yeah. literally wired into our brains. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the thing I would say is like the deep grief. Um, the season of deep grief that we find ourselves in, that I find myself in, find myself in, uh, is it gives you a reprieve from that. From the games? I don't know how long it'll last. Would love if it just lasted indefinitely. Mm-hmm. But I have noticed that there are things that have been gifts to me of grief that are already going away. So... I mean, chances are, if you become manager of Dairy Queen, I'm going to be jealous in a year, you know? But my, my mother used to send me little clips from my hometown newspaper about high school classmates and, like, amazing things they were doing. And Hillary. I'm like, Mom, please, please don't ever send one of those ever <laughs> would do that again. Yeah. I'm like, I don't care. It only makes me feel insecure. Please don't do this. But, RJ, you should get the ones from my high school. It would make you feel better. <laughs> okay. Yeah, mine was like, you know, just became yours were, yours managing director at Goldman Sachs and, right. and, and her like, husband, oh. world-renowned ceramicist, you know, <laughs> and they're two, I'm just like, Jesus, you know, I mean, that literally, that literally was a clip she sent me a few, a few years That's ago. I was amazing. like, please don't, don't ever, don't ever do this again. I wish I could say that I feel like I've had a reprieve from the status game, but I, mm-hmm. I don't, I feel like I, I've been trying really hard to win the pandemic. <laughs> You know, yeah, like, yeah. it's just another Like, my problem. church is going to come out of this even bigger. Even stronger. Yeah. We're, we're going to build back better, baby. Yeah. You know, um, but I'd say that is, it's 100%. Like, I, sure. I, it has been a rough few weeks. I'm going to just make a confession that's going to make, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a humble brag, which I'm hoping will, will make me look bad. Um, we had like a, a you know dio- a, a, a diocesan clergy meeting or whatever, and we're going over the budget for for the coming year, and they're showing all the numbers from the various churches and the stewardship numbers, you know, and uh, and you know our church did did well in stewardship. Like we were one of only a few churches that were up last year, and we were up more than any other church. And I'm like, we won the pandemic, you know. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly yeah. I felt I felt pretty good for about an hour. <laughs> You yeah. know what I mean? And then you were so, overcome with the same emptiness. Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, um, writing in uh, Unheard, Ed West was reviewing this book, and he talked about how 
you just like our lust for status is simply insatiable, especially compared to even something like power. But he does say that uh, the need for status can be beneficial, as we all know. If he says, visit any major art gallery and you will see the result of intense competition in late medieval Italy, where rival families hired the greatest artists and architects to raise their status. In 18th century Britain, membership of clubs and societies became a social marker, the result being that the number of learned societies rose from 50 in 1750 to 1500 in 1850 with an enormous impact on education levels, wealth, and a variety of other measures. But then he says, but just as often, status games, as we know, can be toxic and do dreadful things to people, especially if religion, politics, or some other marker of identity are involved. I've long believed that political beliefs work as status markers and have become more so in recent decades as other signals have declined in importance. People will adopt positions not just out of sincerity, uh, partisan loyalty, or conformity, but because they signal social status. Now, these said something that very interesting that I did not know of. The polling shows that a dislike of modernist architecture is one of the few things that every demographic agrees on. Black, white, Asian, male, female, rich, poor, young, and old, they all prefer the more vernacular style of architecture. The one section of society which disagrees happens to be architecture students. And the longer someone has been studying architecture, the more pro-modernist their views. That suggests that an opinion has become a status signal, marking the sophisticate out from the hoi polloi. He says the same process is clearly at work behind social media-led bullying. There are always framed in terms of... Uh He's just talking about how, how uh, this is um, usually this sort of status games. You, you compete in them uh, out of some, like a sort of Augustinian, like a sort of misdirected good. He said people on social media are always framing their, uh, their bullying of others in terms of protecting the weak, the urge to care and protect oh, from yeah. harm. Uh, the, but the more people imagine themselves to be aiding the vulnerable, the more horrendous their behavior, giving them free reign to commit what Jonathan Sachs Oof. has called altruistic evil. People do terrible things <clears throat> more out of love than out of hate. But it is also a status game, the aim being to seek m the maximal removal of their opponent's status, ideally reputational death. Cancellation. Well, that's, I don't know if that's, that, that word has become so loaded, but it's like, it, it has, seems but, to be. Yeah. I know you get canceled <clears throat> if you talk badly about cancel. I know. I talked about, I talked about, I preached a sermon recently <laughs> about defilement and, you know, Mark 7 and Jesus saying uh -huh. what goes into a person. I said, you know, I think that uh, we see a lot of concern about defilement on campus because we're right here and it's often talked about as, as quote unquote cancel culture. The I think the better term is catharsis culture because you're trying to expand or purge some sort of stain, usually some perceived stain. And uh, Alan Jacobs has talked about it. I think it's a really helpful way to view it. But of course, a lot of people came up to me afterwards and they sort of said, well, I hope you don't get canceled for talking about cancel culture because yeah. yeah. that's our context. You know, there's this other context where if I didn't talk about it, people would be upset. So it was... Um, very uh, remarkable. So fun to be a preacher it's, in 2021. It's just really, it's really fun. But anything else about status games, love, hate? Well, yeah. Games. I mean, every, <laughs> everyone RJ. has a need to feel that they're worth something. Mm. You know, everyone has a need to win some kind of game, right? That we're, if, we're, if we're losing one game, we need to, to then change the game and find a game that we can win. And as uh, one of these people says in their article, if, if you're 
if there's no game you can find to win, if you just feel like you're a loser on every level, it has really dire consequences for your your mental health and your sense of and your of physical being. health, your physical health actually. Yeah. yeah. You know, whereas it, it's ironic that the, you know, the, the lectionary reading this week is the one where the disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Yeah. You know, they're, they're playing, they're playing the, the status, um, the status game. And of course, what we, you know, <clears throat> the search for worth via status is ultimately a, a, a total shell game, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work. And what the, what the Christian answer to it is, is that we find our sense of worth, not in status, but in belovedness. Right, that we are loved unconditionally and eternally, in spite of the fact that we uh, lose. You know that we're that we're that we're losers, and that Jesus Jesus is willing to lose every single status game imaginable for our sake. You know, so um, so I get it, and I do it, and I'm, we're never going to be cured of our desire for status. I guess until we just completely bottom out, and then and then we'll be we'll we'll get rid of it for a week or two. Or unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, it's something exactly. terrible. Then it'll come, roaring, come roaring, back. roaring back. The only way yeah. to get rid of it is how unfortunately it was gotten rid of for our dear yeah. friend Sarah. All, all <laughs> yeah. I can think about though is like Dave. I said this. I think I said this to you on the phone, but um. Also, I just want to like occasionally say like if you listen to the po- podcast and you're like, oh my god, Sarah's really horrible. Like, y- yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and um, don't feel bad for thinking it. I remember talking. I think I told you this, Dave. Like when I was starting grief group, um, and I was like. Dave, am I going to win grief? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Do you I'm going to grieve the you-know-what out of this. I didn't lose just one like, parent, you know? And then just, just heads up, people had it much worse than I did, okay? Like, I did not win. So, yeah, no, it's just, it's, the, I find this, I, I mean, it's, it's, it is the thing that frustrates people about Mockingbird. I'm just going to say it. And it is also the reason why it's my theological home. We will never escape our sin this side of the heavenly veil. Yeah, no way. We will be reassured of forgiveness, which also means that we have to acknowledge that we're sinners. Mm. And I find so much relief in that. And I love when... Um, a low anthropology just slams right into science <laughs> because it's like it's a relief like okay people who live in totally other countries with completely different cultures are also like longing to you know win yard of the month yeah yeah marxism won't solve this problem right <laughs> no and then this is i mean we talk about it oftentimes in form, forms like status games are usually governed by the law like if mm-hmm. if you if you win if you if you if your lawn is you know manicured enough then you right. will sort of win you'll be on top right. and what we find out is that you know there's a there's always someone with a nicer lawn than yours uh mm-hmm. and uh if you do win, though, you better, um, you know, you better keep it up. You better keep it up. Your church better get even higher stewardship that next next year. RJ, how are you going to do it? Well, and I and I felt I felt that actually. I w- I was um, I watched an interview to bring it back to sports uh, with Naomi Osaka, mm. uh, oh. you know, last year's U.S. Yeah. Open champion who went through all that stuff with Serena Williams, where Serena behaved badly. Was that last year, or two years ago? I can't remember. Time is such a weird thing. But this year, you know, she's really struggled with her mental health. She dropped out of Wimbledon, then she played the U.S. Open. She ended up losing to Layla Fernandez, who made the finals, as a lot of top players did. 
Um, but she came into her uh, her press conference and she said, she just cried. And she's like, I don't know what to do. She's like, um, there's no joy in winning anymore. It, winning only feels like relief. It feels like a relief. Yeah. And when I lose, I just get really, really sad. Yeah. And it doesn't feel normal. And I don't know what to do. And I'm not sure the next time I'm going to play tennis. Oh, my god. And I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Um, coming back, so there was something sad. about coming back after my vacation this summer. I did, this is going to sound weird. I did. I, I felt the pressure of perfection mm-hmm. to the degree where I felt like my first few sermons back, I was manuscripting my sermons more than I ever do. You know, like like reading them off the page, and I felt like there was something wrong. And I I, I was I, re- I was realizing this this drive per- for perfection in myself. Like this has to be perfect. I have to get this right. There's no freedom to fail. And it just felt dead to me. Yeah. You know. So this 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 past Sunday, I finally just tried. You know, I had a few notes, but I tried to preach more extemporaneously, and it just felt so much better, even though it was a lot scarier. And trying to shove away that need for to get everything exactly right to win. You know. If you feel like you've been winning, you just want to keep, you got to keep winning. Like, God forbid, you know, you preach a bad sermon. God forbid you lose a tennis match. You know, God forbid you lose one of these status games that you use to define yourself. Um, And there's no freedom in that. It's just, it's just slavery and darkness um, because you can't keep it up. But let me also say, Leila Fernandez was incredible. Like, that was, (laughs) that was an amazing U.S. Open. And Chris Everett kept saying about Leila and about Emma Raducanu, who just had this, this, you know, irrepressible teenage joy she's like i really hope they still have this three years from now yeah they, and, it's they, like, and it's like they won't they won't no. and they absolutely won't like they played the u.s open they were both in it they attended the met gala like they're at the they're now they're gonna have to keep it up you right. know and like that's just but no what is fun. i love this i love like our podcast because just like come for the sadness stay for the sadness <laughs> Well, that, that Osaka quote, I, I hadn't read that Osaka quote, and we followed the Open really closely this year, and that was my, my wife. It was, sad, it was sad, but it was true, and I was like, oh my gosh, she's speaking to me. Like, I feel exactly the same way. Now, when I, if I preach a good sermon, there's no joy, it's just relief. You know, it's like, oh, thank God I didn't blow it. <laughs> you know, and like, I, that's not where I want to be. No. The, guy, the guy who figured this out, strangely, it was Andre Agassi. Who just like had to, he basically took long hiatuses from his tennis career about two or three times. And then he would come back and then he would burn out and come back and burn out and come back and burn out. And he finally felt some, finally found some peace later on in his career. Um, But he had a very tortured relationship with the thing that he did best. Mm. He sort of hated it, you know, and he's very clear about that in his book, Open. So, anyway, that's enough sports for today. Tennis moments. Yeah, I was going to say, this has been. You're you're welcome. Tennis corner with R.J. Heyman. (laughs) Exactly. This has been. Any any sport, though, where it's individual, where all of the dynamics we talk about um, uh, play out in spades. And that's why they're so interesting. Mm -hmm. There's a a Marty Fish documentary uh, that's on Netflix now, the tennis player. It's about anxiety and apparently... I haven't seen it yet, but I've been told by like three people uh, that it is. Yeah. Uh, it has all of this in uh, written in the skies. Uh, but, He's not good enough to have his own documentary. He's well, never won anything. That's that's how I feel. That's how I feel about you, RJ. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, let's let's move on to something even more uplifting. Hannah Anderson, who I've gotten to know a little bit, uh, she wrote in Christianity Today. She wrote, "COVID nineteen kill, uh, killed our sense of personal progress." It's a great piece. She said, for many of us, making the best use of our time doesn't mean living a purposeful life. It means getting as much done as possible. We multitask and hustle and pursue what Oliver Berkman 
one of our heroes who just wrote a new book called 4,000 Weeks, dubs the fully optimized life. And truthfully, it, it kind of works. We accomplish a lot. We get stuff done. It works, that is, until a global pandemic hits and our ability to plan comes to a screeching halt. It works until we find ourselves in the same sp- place we were six months ago, feeling mocked by progress. It works until death and grief flood our news feeds daily. Whether it's the pastor struggling to hold a fragmenting church together or parents having to weigh their child's education against health concerns, a whole lot of us are on the verge of giving up hope. So many of our expectations, plans, and dreams have been dashed over the last 18 months, never to be recovered. But what if this moment also holds a particular kind of promise? What if, it, what if the forces disrupting our productivity and sense of control have also opened up an opportunity to engage our lives differently? This strange moment in history, Berkman writes, when time feels so unmoored, might in fact provide the ideal opportunity to reconsider our relationship with it. Christians have not been immune to the gospel of productivity and progress. This is Hannah uh, Anderson writing again. But scriptures, especially Ecclesiastes, remind us that the gospel of progress and productivity is unequal to the realities of life. We live only 4,000 weeks, the majority of them spent on mundane tasks. We are weak, dependent creatures, desperate for the grace and mercy of God. In this moment, we feel our dependence acutely, and that feeling is a gift. Because in this moment, this depressing, disturbing, terrible moment, we have a chance to learn the truth about ourselves and the lives we thought we wanted. More than being good advice, this is good news. The life God calls us to is not one of more work, greater efficiency, and stellar performance. Rather, he invites us to rest by surrendering to the lives and plans he has for us, lives that at times may feel stalled, failing, and limited. Our limits are not strictures holding us back, writes author Ashley Hales, but doorways into intimacy with God. It is only as we acknowledge and embrace the goodness of our limits that we embrace hope. Yeah, I guess again, a little sort of downbeat, but um, at least she's, I felt in her acknowledging of reality, I felt, I did feel a sense of hope. I did feel a sense of like embrace, like, uh, you know, this, um, the treadmills were on uh, of, of productivity and optimization and just never and stopping, uh, you know, crushing it, killing it, producing. Um, To have those stopped does, has given some of us a little bit of a chance to reevaluate and maybe think about, um, how the gospel stands in contradistinction to that, the, the gospel of the world, which really is about more and more and more always on, always winning. Um, uh, d- this struck a chord with me, clearly, but w- did it strike a chord with you? Yeah, I mean, I think also it's funny, like the gospel of the world uh, <laughs> is often confused with the gospel, um, just that I think sometimes we actually do think the world is our responsibility to fix mm. and that we, we actually have to keep going and keep doing and make it better and we're not doing enough and everyone needs to do more. And, you know, one blessing of the pandemic is that my world got a whole lot smaller. So um, it suddenly just became my two kids and my husband mm. And they were actually the only people put into my care that I could help at all. And I'm not sure that that shift will go back. If that makes sense. Like it, that feels like there's a, there's a shift that happened for me there 
that um, that hasn't gone back yet. Part of that is is honestly probably the death of my parents, and so I just didn't have the energy for anything beyond my front door. Mm. Um, but there are things that I do now that I did not do before the pandemic, or I did really begrudgingly that I have no. I just it's it's not even like I've willed myself into being happy about it. Um, it's just not the, the frustration is not there anymore, which has been such a blessing of like, Oh, these are actually the only people you can help. <laughs> the ones that live in your house. Well, then all of a sudden you're actually helping you know? them too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, these are the only people like that you can like actually be in their lives, like are the ones who are in your, like, and you know, there is something also, and we've talked about this before, but, uh, we can really distract ourselves from the problems in our household if we make our, uh, if if we superhero up our skill set to include healing the whole world, you know, then we can just avoid mm. right what's what's actually put into our care. So. That's I, I yeah. And how many stories have you heard of like a, you know. My mom was the school nurse who helped everyone in the in the, in the city, yeah, but yeah, never yeah. Took, never like had time for me. Or my yeah. my dad was the pastor who loved yeah. everyone in the community, but I never got yeah. to see him. Um, right. He his name was R J Heyman. So yeah, just kidding. R. J., R. <laughs> no, believe mine. me, believe me. I'm like maybe that's hey. R J talks about winning. maybe that will be the story my kids tell. If he talks about winning again, this is just our, our our duty as Christians to make sure that he knows that in fact he is not winning. He's he's. <laughs> He is, he is still the same RJ we love, and we don't love him because of he wins. We love him because of how... Because he's RJ. Because he's RJ. Belovedness, I think, is what someone said, is how we're, we're uh, valued. Rucker. Yeah, I, I, I wish I was feeling this article. I, um, <clears throat> I don't... Yeah, I wish I did, and, and I understand how someone could. I, I don't I don't feel like <laughs> this has been an opportunity for me to uh, do less and pull back. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you RJ, you like took a church, it like at the beginning of this, so it would be bad just to name it for the church. <laughs> if when you took the church, you were like, you know what, I'm just gonna hang out with the kids and Jamie. Like, God has really called I mean, me into is, a season of rest. What? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I that's that's the thing fair. is I do I have heard of other rectors who were new at their church and were like oh you know I'm actually I'm participating in a, a good friends of mine ordination in a foreign country I'll be gone for a month I'll see you later hmm. you know and uh, huh. I mean that's ill advised I I just don't know what to <laughs> I don't know what to say I I feel like I, I, I have been no 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 not about that but about like my own approach to this pandemic yeah I have been. Uh, scrambling. I've been working my ass off, pardon my friend, for like the last year and a half, just trying to figure out how to keep us together and having to reevaluate decisions like on a weekly basis, you know, and I, and I'm, and I, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. And I'm, I'm, and I'm also, honestly, I'm kind of exhilarated, too. Like, part of me is a little worried. Like, maybe I've just gotten really good at being a crisis pastor, and maybe I'm not going to be a very good non-crisis pastor, you know? Um, I don't know, man. I yeah, I, I wish I wish um, that this had, had been more, I don't want to say a break or something. It just hasn't been. Mm. It hasn't been at all. And there have been a lot of people to take, take care of, and people have gotten sick, and people who are shut in, and people who have died. Yeah. And, and, you know, funerals that no one could attend. Yeah. 
and uh, you try to figure out how to live stream baptisms and weddings and funerals because people can't be there. And mm. I don't know, man. You're making me exhausted just, just hearing about it. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And I don't that's, know what to that's, say. Uh, I think that it, 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 <clears throat> most of the people I know in church and nonprofit work have have yeah. felt this way that they're they're and and we talked about it last week in terms of uh, you know um, customer service. Anyone in the service industry, you're not only um, a restaurant, you're now having to figure out a takeout business as well, and um, you know a whole online thing and it's just like and you're not getting paid anything more so well, and then to figure out like what does the science actually say yeah. like do i you know i'll give you am i i have to become like a uh, an amateur epidemiologist you know what is the cdc actually saying what do these numbers actually mean yeah. who should be wearing masks who should not be wearing it's masks or just, people need pissed off how yeah. how how punitive are we going to be with people who just refuse to wear masks you know like well, it's yeah. stressful it is but then like it's also i don't know we were in church this past sunday and like some people are in masks. Some people weren't. Yeah. And it was just so beautiful to be together. Totally. And I know that people yes. are going to hear that and think like I sound naive and whatever. I felt the same way on Sunday. Sunday was I'm good. Like a, one of yes. those weird Christians that doesn't believe in science. I believe in the science, but also like I believe in the Holy Spirit. And it was really, really good just to be together. Mm. And I hear you. It's like, you know, there's such a longing for how we can make that possible. So... Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little more globally um, right now. There's an ed- remarkable essay in The Point, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite journals. It was by Shivani Radhakrishnan. I think I hope I'm saying that right. Shivani Radhakrishnan. And it's a it's a, a essay called Uncertain Terms. And what she's really doing is she's um, giving an overview of the work of one of my favorite essayists and writers today writing is a woman named Megan O'Geeblin. And Megan has a new book out uh, called uh, God, Human, Animal, Machine. God, Human, Animal, Machine. But she also wrote a book called Interior States. And I, uh, I would love for her to speak at a Mockingbird conference. And what she's dealing, what, she, what, what, what uh, Shivani is talking about is really the deep conversion narrative, which has become a kind of a more and more popular narrative in our culture. People leaving religion behind personally, et cetera, et cetera. If you've been a person who's been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast that Mike Cosper has been doing. It's, I know it's like been triggering for a lot of people, but it's very interesting. It's become one of the top 10 uh, podcasts on iTunes and, you know, for really, yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. Everyone's listening Jamie's to Jamie's listened it, to it all. Like, I have not listened to it. I tell me it. about it. I don't need to listen. Well, to every time I've been out on the West coast and a lot of times, like as, as life goes on, I, um, this is probably more specific than people need to know, but th- that that church specifically, that one human being, um, created such devastation in terms of yeah. uh, people's personal faith that uh, mm. uh, people the, the quote unquote deconstruction movement or the deconversion thing. Uh, this guy, as far as I can tell, I'm sure there were some great things that happened there, but he seems to be, have been a, personally a catalyst for a lot of it uh, in a ways that I've underestimated. Like every time I'm out there, it's like, yeah, I, I was such and such related to such and such at Mars Hill. And then when that imploded, I decided I hated God or I decided I hated everything that I'd ever been taught was wrong. Um, it was it was that wounding to people, but probably because it was that meaningful to people. But be that as it may, uh, you get a lot of these very tidy deconversion stories, which are sort of like, I, I was really all in here. This imploded. And therefore, I am now I'm all out. I'm out. I'm, you know, there's no like, 
you're either all in or all out. It's a very Protestant mentality, frankly. Um, but this is a, we're not talking about Mars Hill, okay? We're, we're talking about Megan O'Keeblen, who's a different sort of writer, and she writes for the Paris Review and for Wired Magazine, and she's sort of, she's very sophisticated. Um, but the, the Shivani, who writes this, uh, Radhakrishnan, who wrote this essay, she said, she said, deconversion narratives are, often follow a trajectory that is suspiciously breezy. Reviews of deconversion stories like Educated by Tara Westover, uh, Unorthodox, um, uh, often speak of bravery. Against all odds, the protagonists of such stories inevitably reach a kind of spiritual adulthood. And yet for O'Geeblin, who left Chicago's Moody Bible Institute and the fundamentalist Baptist faith of her umbringing, deconversion was supposed to mean, quote, striding onto terra firma, embracing a world where there would be no more shadows, no more distant echoes, only the blinding and unambiguous light of science and reason. Well, leaving uh, religion meant, uh, she thought, a more straightforward relationship to the world, but as it turns out, that was a false hope. El Giblin continually writes that the material world is every bit as elusive as the superstitions I'd left behind. Interior States, which is her first book, is not a deconversion narrative in its standard form. It's most centrally a book about the stubbornly religious longings that flicker within people even as formal faith dims and disappears. At one point, O'Geeblin turns her energies of spiritual self-betterment on her body. Her search history becomes a compendium of cleanse recipes, high-intensity workouts, and the glycemic index of various exotic fruits. Now, on the face of it, her new book, O'Geeblin's God, Human, Animal, Machine, is a different kind of book. It's a deeply researched work of history, criticism, and philosophy. Uh, and it begins in our technological age where, O'Geeblin writes, everything in modern life from our minds to the rotation of the planets has become a system to be figured out. Yet insofar as O'Geeblin continues to complicate the conventional deconversion narrative, uh, God, Human, Animal, Machine, and Interior States are part of a continuous project. Taken together, they show that religion isn't a subject matter you can simply move on from, nor does Eblin expect to outgrow her former vantage point as a believer. Instead, her new book probes the uneasy coexistence between what's enchanted and what's disenchanted. In fact, it's really a reflection on how we seek redemption in technology after losing God. She first goes to Ray Kurzweil's Age of Spiritual Machine and invests it with a totemic power. According to Kurzweil, human enhancement and resurrection could still be viable beliefs for a non-religious person. Only this time, that meant uploading your consciousness and then using that as part of your rebirth. Uh, O'Geeblin reads Kurzweil's theories of human enhancement and transcending mere life, how he sees the grand narrative history as leading toward nothing short of total re-enchantment. The ideas and promises, the belief that the dead would rise, that the earth would be transformed, that humans would become immortal, sounded to her a lot like Christian eschatology. But if science, in fact, does present itself as a new form of revelation, aren't we just better off going to church? Churches today, she argues, have stopped providing a real alternative to the bleak moral market of contemporary life. Congregations do market research to see what parts of teaching will go over best. That's why many churches stop talking about hell. Um, and a development that O'Geeblin suggests compromises their ability to provide real options to those already living in a market-driven society. This is part of why transhumanism and tech theory are so intriguing to her. They represent appropriately 21st century forms of re-enchantment. Now, I'll stop there. I've got some other things to read from her. Um, but... Does this strike a chord? Have you have you heard narratives of deconversion as far as it goes? Uh, 
you know, I, I felt like my, my whole project of seculosity was really about how uh, the spiritual impulse finds new targets, um, sometimes which will eat you alive in different ways than, uh, but maybe, maybe, maybe not as, now that I hear the Mars Hill fallout, maybe they're less toxic. I don't know. Um, what do you guys think? I think the interesting, there's a lot of interesting things about these articles to me in juxtaposition. One is that, you know, what she's saying, what the early article said is that everyone is looking for the same things, right? Everyone is looking for a sense of, of worth whether they're seeking it through um, status or belovedness, and everyone is seeking redemption. It's just a question of where you're going to look, you know, and, and, and what, what can actually deliver. You know, part of me is tempted to say, if, if these are the things you want worth, you want redemption, go and try and find them somewhere else. You know, go, go out there and, 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 and seek it. Because I'm pretty sure you're not going to find it anywhere else. Maybe you will, and if you do, God, Godspeed. Um, but maybe Jesus actually offers something unique. And then the other thought I had was um, just the frustration that a lot of people feel, and sometimes I do. I, I hear more from some other people, just with Christians. Like, what the hell is wrong with Christians? <laughs> you know, if only Christians weren't so impossible. You know, Catholic Christians, Mars Hill Christians, you know, liberal Christians, conservative Christians, fundy Christians, like if only Christians weren't so impossible. And, you know, I, you just want to say or what, I've, what I've, I've wanted to say is, yeah, but, you know, I understand that we're ambassadors for what we say we believe, but Christianity isn't about Christians. It's about Jesus. And if you think Christians are bad, just go get to know anybody else. Like everyone's a disaster. Everyone is going to, I know a couple of, everyone is, everyone's going to betray you, you know? Um, and we don't come to church because we believe in Christians. We come to church as broken people who call ourselves Christians because we look to Jesus, because we think Jesus among the billions of people who've walked this planet is unique. He's different than anybody else, which to me seems empirically true. He's just different from anybody. I'm, I'm, I've said this before. I'm always struck how 2,000 years later, there's really nothing in the ministry of Jesus to which 2,000 years later we say, ooh, that was, a, that was a bad thing you did there, Jesus. You know, that was something we have to explain away as being something that was, you know, culturally specific to 2,000 years ago. He still seems to have gotten just about everything he did pretty much exactly right, mm. which is crazy to think about. So, um, yeah, I don't, I guess... I don't know what I, what I'm trying to say in all in all that. I'm trying to make an apologetic for Christianity a little bit, and a way to, and also a way for Christians as Christians to acknowledge our brokenness and the brokenness of those with whom we follow Jesus together, um, while also saying that that's not you know it's not why we go to church necessarily for because other Christians are so great. We go because Jesus is so great. Mm. Um, that's a great. I think that's a beautiful reminder. I, I the the thing that strikes me as so fresh and not uh, um, so contrary to some of the narratives. And we're going to hear more and more of these narratives, by the way. This uh, there's this is already a genre, the deconversion genre, and it will become more yeah. and more popular because it's sort of, especially it gives people 
um, you know, it, it allows us to feel better. And, and, you know, if you're a person who grew up with that sort of baggage, you, you feel known in the, those things. And I think there's a certain type of grace that probably is tr- transmitted course, yeah. through that. I think the, what is the naive part and the low anthropologist in me says what, what I think that Ogiebwin constantly hones in on, that the sense of mature, maturation and liberation that comes from shucking a religious background, um, even a really toxic one, uh, it's just talk to me in 10 years. Like that is, uh, yeah. that is uh, always, I think, premature, in fact. And it, I, I find it to be that sort of, as she calls it, a breezy narrative is as adolescent in, its, in, its, in how it comes off as any of the things they're rejecting. Um, because life is, is in fact, more com- complicated. And O'Geeblin is one of the, the, she's got this gift of communicating the ambivalence of what it means to live with, because we want to believe these things were oppressive, they're ancient, they're hurtful, Life is much sexist. sexist. Life is much much better without them, and uh, she's basically saying, in some ways, uh, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. And um, you never quite, um, if you're honest with yourself, you never actually leave behind a lot of the the things that because as much as the problems were external and the the systems that were foisted on you, the truth is most of the your restlessness and unpleasantness is actually internal. It reminds me what, um, sorry, and then I'll, I, the last thing I'll say is sorry, Sarah. Um, what Francis Spufford uh, says in his introduction to, uh, you know, unapologetic about that uh, advert, the new atheist advertisement on the London city buses, you know, there's probably, which said, um, there's probably no God, so stop worrying about it and just enjoy your life. <laughs> and he's like, who exactly is enjoying their life? <laughs> You know, and if and if you think that getting rid of God is suddenly going to make your life so much better and more enjoyable, like give me like how adolescent is that? So I just I do have to say as a woman, I think it's really important to note that um, and this is a thing that I have come to understand as an adult because I was raised in the Episcopal Church where people don't have grand like deconversion narratives about the Episcopal Church. Just like I just thought of. They come to the Episcopal Church when they've suffered a grand deconversion. <laughs> they do. Or if they were raised in the Episcopal Church, they just started reading the New York Times on Sunday mornings. Like, they don't have, like, a big moment where they left, you know? Like, it's fascinating to me. Um, I, but I would say, um, on that note, that I do know people who were raised in the Episcopal Church who left for, you know, none of these reasons, just because they found something better to do on Sunday morning, brunch, I don't know. And it was the words of the liturgy that they remembered from their childhoods that brought them back. Mm. And so I do, you know, as, as much as we can find all sorts of reasons, you know, to make jokes about uh, the tradition that we are in, um, for me, I will say, I, I just, I have to say this as a woman, I have so many women come to me all the time in ministry um, who were not raised in the Episcopal Church, who have had such, you know, Mars Hill, like horrible, horrible Mm. things happen to them. Assault, um, awful things um, that were then justified in that religious context. Mm. And they have had to deconstruct that. And it has been horrible. And I do feel really lucky to have been raised in a denomination by parents where that was just not anything I ever experienced. And they have, have experienced to... some liberation on the other side of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, much needed, really important. What is heartbreaking though, is then they don't, 
they don't have any, like it all got taken away. Right. <laughs> in that moment. Um, so they don't, even if there was a beautiful sense of faith there, that is so intricately connected that it is, it is gone to, and they're left with nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is just, gosh, I mean, it's just heart-wrenching. And I, I feel so, you know, they'll come to me because I'm a woman, and I'm like, I have no capacity. This is so hard and horrible. I'm so sorry. That's kind of all I know to say. <laughs> um, but I, I I love this idea of enchanted uh, and disenchanted because I think we long for enchantment. Mm. Um, I think our hearts are like flowers that turn to the sun. Like we are always looking to be enchanted and the danger in sort of having our own narratives about what's enchanting or how enchantment works is that a, they're not our ours, Mm -hmm. right? We're all, I mean, to the point of seculosity, we're all sort of consuming and making a religion out of something all the time. So instead of like official religion, right, it's like things we see on Instagram and then we say things like, well, I don't want to say that out loud because I don't want to speak it into existence, Mm. right? Right. (laughs) To which I always reply verbally right to your face when you say nonsense like that to me, that's not how it works. (laughs) So like it's just, that's the thing is like, the secret. Yeah, I'm like, that's not how, you know, people will say, people say like, uh, you know, what God doesn't give us more than we can handle. I'm like, that's not how it works. You know, like, it's just, it's, it, that is the danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I live in sort of an in-between space with this just because, you know, when you see, especially women who've been victimized by the church, um, gay people who've been victimized by the church and they don't want anything to do with the church, you're like, I get it. You know, I get yeah. it. But it's just such a it's such a bummer. I should have a better word than that. It's such a bummer because everything gets taken away. Yeah. Yes, I s- and then they're left with Instagram. Yeah. I, 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 I agree with you 100%. And I, my tendency, I think the tendency of, of people in the main line, or at least in my own, who, who grew up not out really with that same sort of baggage, is to, over time, to start to roll one's eyes and be like, get over it, you know? It's a, right. But then uh. I go around and I speak to places and I hear, st- I, I think, I hear the worst possible stories. Yeah. And I hear them from wow. every category you've just mentioned. And I hear them just from yeah. regular dudes too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, really that happened? Like, I, 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 have, I haven't been, I, I haven't been turning a straw man out of this sort of sense of this hyper uh, form of legalistic Christianity. I've been underdoing it. And it, yeah. it is uh, created such whatever decline the church is experiencing is its own fault, like bottom line. Yes. But then I sit in church one one Sunday, and you're right, I'm sitting in the liturgy, and I hear someone preach, and I hear stories about Jesus, and I'm like, this seems like, this has nothing to do with what was going on in in uh, in, uh, in Seattle, and uh, but sort yeah. of. This is, good this is stuff. really good stuff. There's some good hey, stuff here. Hey. And there's some, oh there's some there's life you know? and death here. And there's forgiveness. Yeah. And like, this is, uh, wait a second, maybe this whole thing. And there's like s- genuine, like self-acknowledgement of sin by the preacher. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? There's all these like beautiful 
Yeah. So I don't. I, I appreciate her attempt, to, her uh, Ogiblin's uh, complicating of the narrative because you know, frankly, I'm surrounded by Christians who have other narratives of their lives about victorious living and all that sort of stuff, and and they've edited mm-hmm. things out, just like the person who left my the youth group that I ran into at a wedding two weeks ago, and just sort of has this whole idea about how terrible youth group was, and and you know how terribly victimized they were, and now they're living in the truth and something. He's like, well, you know, I've got pictures of you. You don't look. You look like you're having a blast. You know, and you clearly forgotten a lot of the good things you you've you, you've got your own narrative and our narratives yeah. tend to function as laws and as justification for what we want to believe about ourselves in the moment and once we get back to reality that uh, things are both and and that we're uh, we're contributing to our, these systems as well as being the victims of them like uh, you kind of just are like well lord jesus have mercy on me like i i got i got yes I, I don't really have many answers except for this 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 sounds like nothing else i've ever heard uh and it still does and i'm 42 and i've been hearing about it every for 20 you know, my my whole life maybe that's naive because but but i'm trying to think about this a little bit in terms of how churches recover from the pandemic and what brings them back to church. I don't think it's naive, Dave. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, because I don't think it's naive because I, as many people as have problems with Christians in the church, I don't, maybe I'm, maybe I'm naive. I don't know that many people that have problems with Jesus. Everyone yeah. seems to generally think Jesus people like him. is pretty great. But they don't just like the meek and mild. They're like, hey, he really like called yeah. out those Pharisees, you know? And he like, he really did. And he he yeah. actually ministered he really to that, love that the woman unlovable. who was totally yeah. broken down, you know? And like, it's, I don't know. It's not just yeah. the Jesus is just nice. You know, I always think that when people presented with the mm. actual Jesus seem to think, Wow, this is this Whoa. is something. Hope. RJ, don't you have that story of the friend who read? The oh yeah, gospel? yeah. My friend who's like hot was like a was like an astrophysics major at Yale and highly educated, and he went out how to have you know just discussions. And I'm like, have you ever read the Bible? He's like, no, I've been meaning to. <laughs> and he and he, and so I gave him a copy, and I was like, read the Gospel of Matthew. I saw him a few weeks later. I was like, so what do you think? He's like, whoa. He's like, Jesus is way different than I thought he was. He's like, he's a wild man. He's like, and he basically, he's like, so I was like, so what do you think about his message? Like, what's his message? He's like, he's like, his basic message is you're all a total disaster and screw it. You're all forgiven. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yes, yes, that's exactly right. So it still speaks amazingly. Do you think think the the folks are going to come back to church one day, RJ? I do. Yeah. I do. I, Dave and I were talking about this uh, a little earlier today. There's been so many. I got an email from a um, Christian organization, you know, which which works with churches to do revitalization work, and the the the, the subject line of the email is, "They're not coming back." Mm, and I fun. was like, something really fun. <laughs> um, and hey, it is true that this past Sunday we probably had you know sixty to seventy percent. Uh, of in-person attendance that we had pre-pandemic, but we also had hundreds, hundreds of people watching online, you know, and I was talking with, I was telling Dave, I was talking with a a guy in our church who, who say that again, winning, 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 totally winning. Um, I was talking to a guy in our church who works um, at a bank and I said, Hey, is, is the Delta variant just running roughshod through your offices? He said, no, not really. He's like, but RJ, remember, you know, we've got more than 100 people on my floor. And right now, only about five to 10 are actually coming in in person. Mm. You know, no one is no one's going back anywhere yet, except, as Dave said, football games. Apparently, everyone is going to sporting games. They seem to be fine with events. going to the UVA <laughs> football games. seem to be just games. fine with yeah. that. Um, I just think it's really, 
I think it's too soon. I think it's premature. I know we're all tired and we're trying to figure out hybrid in-person online strategies and all that sort of stuff. And, and, but people are, as I said, as again, as I said to Dave, um, the people who go to church are either older and so they're scared about the vaccine or they have children who are too young to be vaccinated. And so they're scared about, not scared about the vaccine, scared about the, the pandemic. And, and so people are still just scared. People are still just unsure what to do. And I, I do think they're going to come back. I think once we get to the point where the, where COVID becomes like the flu and people aren't dying so much of it anymore. I don't know. I, I'm maybe I'm hopelessly optimistic, but I think people are still around. They're just they're tired and they're mourning. They're they're and they're, they're traumatized. I think like we, we yes, and that that's gonna that's gonna pass. But I think people are coming back to church as much as they're coming back to anything besides football games. So <laughs> Sarah, what, do you have any any wisdom on that? I mean, I had as many students join last week as I had when I started this ministry in total. Yes, yes. So, I mean, there's definitely a longing for enchantment. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. And I think it's, you know, my, my population, of course, is a bit more fearless. They're all vaccinated. And so, um, they don't have the anxiety of, of being older or having small children. And, and that's definitely wonderful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Our church on Sunday morning felt pretty full, I think, yes. you know, and happy. So and I just, I, I do, I do think people come back and maybe that's naive, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I don't go to church cause I'm married to the priest. I know plenty of priest wives who don't go to church. Okay. And I go to church because I need church. And I'm assuming it's not just because I'm like the only needy person on the planet. Mm. You know, I'm assuming other people need church. Um, yeah, I, don't I had know. a person in tears this week who I called and is battling some health issues. And she's worried about her immune system. And, and she's crying. She's like, I miss my church. I need uh, my church. I want to come back. Yes. But she's scared. Yeah, yeah. you know. I, the, um, the, I, I'm with you a hundred percent here because we, I, we had one Sunday where like no people were in church, and then we the next Sunday was just jammed. Um, but with with students especially, I think that the longing for enchantment, as you say, Sarah, is not going away. In fact, it's only going to strengthen. Also, the longing for a reprieve from the status game uh, is not yeah. going away anytime soon. But yeah. ultimately, what people are, I think, the longing for. Um, you know, for hope and for for forgiveness and for uh, everlasting life. I mean, these are not um, uh, small things that are on offer. When you think of like what was, um, yeah, when you think of the things that drive people away from religion, they're, they are very potent, but these, the things that drive you to it or, and to the, the cross are, I arguably more potent and they just are, uh, it's, it's my, it's our precise demographic that is under so much pressure has been under, has been suffering and so much with, with young kids during this time and hearing from schools that like, you really can't go anywhere if you want your kids to go to school and the the science, everyone doesn't even know what's true. And you're simply exhausted too. And the idea of trying to do another thing on Sunday, it's not the, the, the great challenge will be, I think, to 
people in ministry or people just who care about churches is not to judge uh, those folks, is to stay in touch with them if you can, yeah. and also not to, because um, that's my, my, my go-to is to be like, well, screw them, they're not real. Like They, they, what, they were just pretending, you know, or, or like, uh, there's a part. My go-to is it, it's all my oh, fault. Oh, yeah, you're good, RJ, <laughs> it's all, yeah, or I could just say it's all RJ's fault. <laughs> It's I mean, like, hard. you guys really <laughs> underestimate how hard it is to be a mother of small children in 2021. Totally. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I know. Because yeah. I just, like, when they don't come to church, I'm like, I get yeah. it. You know? Like, it's yes. just, It's like, a miracle you ever came. And, I mean, yes. and if you come, the day yeah. you come back, I'm just going to give you so much uh, affection and uh, encouragement. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, yeah. you guys encourage me. And uh, I am just so grateful for you. I'm so glad you're feeling better. And uh, I guess that's all we got. Nobody is enjoying their lives, but um, the, the, <laughs> the, the thirst for uh, hope and uh, re-enchantment re is, is real. So, and yeah. so is Jesus. I'm going to go watch Enchanted. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to get my Amy Adams on. Too many oh my gosh. Okay. I love Don't that start with the Disney so stuff much. again. Um, uh, you guys are the best and uh, okay. talk to you soon alright bye love you Dave guys. bye, bye. <laughs> thank you for listening remember you can find us on the web at www.embird.com and we'd always love to hear from you at info at audio production for the Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester and if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time.